for the uh, Word of God this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 17 and we'll look at that passage that Brother Paul read for us this morning. Genesis chapter 17 and we'll read verses 1 to 8 to start us off. As we continue our look at the life of Abraham and Lot and so we've reached this particular point uh, in this series which has been building up one, one chapter after another. And we're up to chapter 17 where God speaks to Abraham about circumcision. We're going to hopefully give you a message about circumcision and what that has to do with us. So I'll define it. We'll we'll find out where it started and uh, we'll see what God has for us today. So Genesis 17 verse 1 says, And when Abram Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face. And God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. And thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shalt thy name any more be Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan. For an everlasting possession, and I will and I will be their God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll commit this time to Him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this time. We just pray that you bless us as we seek to learn from your word and grow through it. And we pray that your spirit would open up the eyes of our understanding, that we might not only understand it, Father, but live it as well. So we thank you once again for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, circumcision. How do you talk about circumcision? Um there are two main groups in this world that perform circumcision on male babies um, as a religious thing. The two main groups are the Jews and the Muslims. Okay, they're the two main groups. Both of those, interesting enough, are descendants of Abraham. And so we find this passage, the start of this whole thing. Who asked for it and and what it's actually there for? And my hope today is I'm going to give you enough information about this so you can go away and say, oh, that's why he asked for it. Okay, I'm really hoping that you understand that. And so some people do circumcision for health reasons or whatever else it may be. But we're looking at the actual, the, the reason that it started. And it wasn't for practical health reasons. It was for a covenant, for a sign between God and Abraham and When Abraham was 99 years old, God came and visited him again, as he had visited him a number of years from the time that he visited him in Mesopotamia and told him to to leave his home and everything that he had and and come down to uh, Canaan, where God was going to give him an inheritance. And he was 75 years at that stage. So 75 years and now he's 99. So quite a very bit of time has passed by. And God had promised him at 75 years of age, I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to make you a great nation. Look at the stars in the sky. That's how many children you're going to end up having. And Abraham is now 99. Hasn't had his son yet. And God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so from the beginning of scripture, if you notice the verse 1, it says the Lord, see that word Lord in your Bibles, it'll have it all in capitals, which means that's God's name, Jehovah or Jehovah, or you can pronounce it different ways depending on what part of the world you come from. But that's God's personal name in that particular place. And we don't normally write, well, the Bible doesn't write his personal name in there as out of really tradition, because the Jews were afraid that if you have God's name all over the place, you could actually take it in vain. So out of respect, they put capital L-O-R-D there, which is the word Jehovah. Actually, it's four letters only. Okay, so it's Y-H-W-H. And that's where we get the name. We, we anglicize it to get the name Jehovah. But God, from the beginning of the Bible, reveals himself only in one way. 
But he is, and you'll notice in verse 1, I am the almighty God. You see, all the other nations of the world believed in all different types of gods. You know, they, they all had a plethora of them, many of them. And God says, no, 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 none of those are actually gods. Um, there is only one God, that's me, and I am not just mighty, I am almighty, which means there can't be more than one almighty. He is the one and he is the only. And he, came, he comes to Abraham and he, and he describes himself again and again to him. But he says to Abraham, he says, I want you to walk perfectly before me. And I want you to walk before me in a way that is perfect according to my will. And he calls on him to be perfect. And that's the God who identifies himself by name and calls to us as well. And God says to us, if you are a believer in, uh, in him, he calls you to be perfect. And the, immediately, the immediate reaction that we get from, uh, from ourselves is, nah, can't be done. Because if you're a believer, you understand that we have a sin nature which continually tries to drag us away from God. And the Bible says, by nature, we are sinners. But God calls to us and says, walk before me perfectly. And so God continues to call for people to walk perfectly before him. Why? Because he is perfect. And Jesus said the same thing. Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And so it should never be a goal that we diminish. It should never be, uh, there should never be a reason that we say, no, can't do it, not going to bother. We are called to work, walk perfectly before God. Whether we don't is another story, but we should put every endeavor to do that because he has called on everyone who, who has called on his name, who believes in him, to walk after him. To walk perfectly means to walk after God, to seek to be like him. And so God comes to Abram. He says, I'm the almighty God. This is my name. And he repeats this covenant that he made with him before. Like he's repeated this a number of times now. And he tells Abraham, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. You're going to be the father of many nations. Kings are going to come from you. And I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, which is where Israel is at the moment, as an everlasting possession for you and all your descendants after you. So God promised that to Abraham and God repeats it. So if you, if you look at verse 7 of Genesis 17, he says, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee, which means all his descendants after him, in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. So God says, I've chosen you people and you, I'm going to be your God forever. In all of this, God had repeated what he'd already stated to Abraham. It's not as if Abraham had heard this for the first time. And so beforehand, in a previous chapter, God had actually performed the ritual, a ceremony which actually binded them together in a contract. Okay, And God said, I'm going to promise these things to you. And in that particular case, they slaughtered animals and what would normally be the custom, which I described previously, is that two people who are making such a, a really a lifelong agreement would normally walk between dead animals that had been killed and slaughtered and cut in half. And you're walking up and down the middle of them with who, whoever you were, you were making a disagreement with to show that this was a life and death thing. I promise that I'm going to keep my side of this particular agreement for the fear of death. Okay, we're walking in between death. Instead, God said to Abraham, you just stay there. And he puts Abraham to sleep. And, and Abraham sees a light, a, a lamp that goes between those animals. So who was God saying that it was all dependent upon? All on him. Abraham couldn't do anything, really, because God was promising this to Abraham. And so something's different, though. Because now he's, he's actually added something different that we haven't seen before. And if you look at verse 5, this is where it's different. He changes his name. He says in verse 5, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And you might think, well, that's not much a big change. That's not a really big change, is it? Well, well it is. Because God's, he's now included 
God has included his own name in Abraham's name. And so it means, well, Abram originally meant high father. Now, by adding A-H to his actual name, it means the father of many nations. And that's what God says, because I have made you a father of many nations, I'm going to change your name to mean that specific thing. Abraham didn't have to do anything before, but now God was going to ask him to do something. Something that he hadn't done before, something that he wasn't aware of, or something that he wasn't used to. And this was as an outward sign of the agreement that they'd made together. And he says, he says to Abraham, he says, I want you to um, show me an outward sign of this covenant. And it's the first outward sign that, that he provides. Just going back quickly, just to, because I haven't finished the, the thing about the, uh, the name. Go back, go forward to verse 15. Because not only does he change Abraham's name, he changes Sarai's name as well. He says in verse 15, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. So God's added the H to both of their names. Because it links them now with him. You know, their names were now linked to this almighty God called Jehovah. In fact, it's almost impossible to say his name in the original form. But they were now linked to him. And God doesn't just do it with them. He does it with a number of other people as well. So if you look at the books in your Bible and you notice the names of the prophets, you will notice that they have a very similar thing. And so if you look at Isaiah, with an A-H at the end of it. Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Zechariah. Well, they're all named in connection to this same God. In fact, Jesus also loved to change people's names by the looks of it. He carries a tradition along. So turn to John chapter 1, verse 41 with me in 42, because you find Jesus doing a similar thing. John chapter 1, verse 41. Make it one. It says there, in John 1, 41, He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is in by, by interpretation a stone. So Jesus changed Simon Peter's name to Cephas to signify that he was like a stone. And he was going to use him as a stone okay, to build his church. And so why does God give new names? Why does God change people's names? It's because in him, they have a new identity. It's the same reason that we have surnames today. If you go back some hundreds of years, people didn't have surnames, okay, in, in most places. Now we have surnames because I, they become the identity of your family name. And so you can have your first name, which is your personal name, and then you have a surname after it's the same reason that we have surnames today it connects you to a family in certain cases coming from an italian background you were even named after your grandparents so you take i took on so frank is the name of my grandfather and so you have this this thing going on so you know who you're linked to which family you're part of and whose son you are but that's not new uh, today. In fact, if you look at Simon here, if you look at the Apostle Peter, he's called Simon Bar Jonah. Okay, and so in the in the Bible, in Jewish days, and even today, Bar Jonah means son of Jonah. So you you they would know who you were, which family you belong to, and so Simon was the son of Jonah. 
English names are interesting names. English names often tell you the, the background from where they're from. So if you're a smith, you have a background in being a smith. Okay? How many other ones are there? There's plenty of them out there. There's so many of them. But you'll also notice, and uh, Oren shared this with me the other day, his name, Denison, literally means the son of Dennis. Okay? So anything with a son at the end of it means the son of. And so you have this connection with, and, and you have the link between. So Peterson, Peterson is the son of Peter. So there's a connection. Your name identifies you in the same way, and it tells everyone who you're linked to. And it's the same, it's the same reason that believers in Jesus Christ were known as Christians first in Antioch. And they're also called the people of the book or the people of the way. So you were linked with a, th a certain thing to show everyone else who it is you identified with. And so we are called Christians today because we identified with Christ. So the purpose here of giving someone a new name, which is what God did, is to identify that person with themselves and what God did with Abraham was identify themselves, identify them, both Abraham and Sarah, to himself. And so for ourselves, when a person is in Christ, the Bible says they are a new creature. Actually turn to Second Corinthians five seventeen with me, because I want to share with you, I want to show you that when you are in Christ, you have a new identity. And when you have a new identity, you need to, you need to have a name that goes with that identity. Okay, So God gives you a new identity when you are born again spiritually. And it says there, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So the Bible tells us, in contrast to every religion in the world, okay? So if you have this in your mindset, then please rethink it. Because every religion in the world says that you can work your way to heaven. That you can actually buy your own efforts you, and if you try hard enough if the if the scales balance in the right direction you can get to heaven with your efforts of course you've got to believe in god because that gives you a bit of a help along the way but the bible doesn't teach that in fact christianity teaches the exact opposite that doesn't matter how hard you try doesn't matter how many things you do you cannot make it to heaven so the only way you can do the only way you can get to heaven is to actually accept the gift that god gave you and so you have to humble yourself and say i'm not good enough you have to throw away this, this notion that somehow you can earn your way there. Somehow there's this good in you, but there's not. The Bible says there is nothing good in us. And so we have to be saved. And I'm not sure if any of you have ever been rescued from a surf or from the water. But if you've ever been in a situation where, you, where you're drowning, um, that's what it's like. There is no way. A person can save themselves. There is no way a person can earn their way to heaven because you're destined to drown and you need a life saver to pull you out of the water. And that's what Jesus did for us. So when God does that, he actually gives you a new identity. The Bible says you are born again. Okay. And so it gives you a new name as well. Turn to Revelation 2.17 with me because it looks as if God has a new name possibly lined up for each and every one of us and it's going to be a special name. So Revelation 2.17 says, He that hath in ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. It looks as if, from this passage, that God is about, or one day, will give us a new name. Okay? 
Um, I like that idea. A special name that God calls you by. You know, you know when you when you, I'm not sure between husbands and wives, do you have special names for each other? And most parents will have special names for their kids and stuff like that. You've got a nickname. I know the Indians are big on nicknames, okay? Um, and Italians are big on nicknames, but normally they're, pretty, they're normally bad, okay? They're normally, they're making fun of someone else, okay? Um, but giving someone a special name between you and them is actually a term of endearment, isn't it? It's actually something special. And especially when God gives you that new name. So he calls you a special name, which is, I think... What he's, what he's saying to, to us in this particular passage, and what he said to Abraham is, when God gives you a new name, you're special to him. So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're special because you have been adopted into his family and God loves his kids. Okay, He loves them and he will do anything for them. So I'm looking forward to that day. I'm not sure if you are, but I'm looking forward to that day when I'm going to be with my Savior and he's going to call me a name that I've never heard before and it's going to be something special between us. Let's continue though. Genesis 17, 9 to 14. It says there, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt, that means between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with money, must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant and the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised that soul shall be cut off from his people he hath broken my covenant and so god calls on abraham and all his descendants to be faithful to this agreement remember i shared with you last time this is a contract that god is making when we speak of covenants in the bible and God is making this covenant with Abraham and his descendants. This is a contract. This is an agreement. This is a, a binding thing. So just the same as you go and sign on the bottom line when you buy a house, you're making a contract with the builder and the builder collapses by the looks of it these days. But you're locked in. Do you understand? So God is locking himself in with Abraham and Abraham is locking himself in. They trust each other for this particular agreement. And God commands them to be faithful to the covenant. And God commands Abraham to circumcise all the male, all the males in his family, even those servants that he has that, that have been bought. And as a, it's a, you'll notice on, ver, on verse 17, it says, it's going to be a token of the covenant between me and you. What's a token? Well, a token is a sign of something else. It's a mark of something else. It identifies that person as connected to that. There's going to be a terrible day coming the Bible says, when the world is going to suffer great tribulation, okay? And that is going to be seven of the worst years the world has ever seen. And during that time, the Bible says that there will be those, and this is when the Antichrist arises, there will be those who willingly mark themselves to identify themselves with him, okay? So if you're ever wondering about the mark of the beast, that mark of the beast cannot be ever taken by accident. That mark of the beast, just like Abraham was about to do, is an outward sign to show his connection to and his agreement with this covenant to say, I'm part of this. In the future, there'll be plenty of people in the world who are going to mark themselves in the same way. But not for God, for the opposite of God. So this circumcision, God says, is a token of a sign, a mark that you and I have made a contract together and you're going to pass this down through all of your generations so that they never forget. 
Because every male that's ever going to be born is going to be circumcised. And it's going to be a reminder that we are still part of this agreement. Because God has made this agreement, not just with Abraham, but with all of his children after him. And we'll see that's through Isaac as well. And so circumcision is an outward sign that they are part of this agreement. Now, I want, you, I want to move forward, okay? Because I want to go past a particular uh, a section, but I want to go to verse 23, which looks at this thing of circumcision. And maybe next time we'll look back at uh, that portion that we've missed regarding the promise of Isaac and Sarah. But I want to look on this particular topic today. So Genesis 17:23 then says, let's see how Abraham responded. Genesis 17:23 says, And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the same day as God had said unto him. And Abraham was 90 years old and nine. So he was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the self same day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael, his son. And all the men of his house, born in the house and bought with, with money of a stranger, were circumcised with him. So, okay. Just to give you an idea of numbers here. Years before, Abraham had gone into battle and he had servants with him. And had, did anyone remember how many servants he had roughly? 300 and? So 318 male servants he had many, many years before. Okay, So he's probably got even more now. But I want you to imagine something. So God's gone to Abraham and said, Abraham, everyone in your household, including all of his servants, including anyone related to you, that in your house, they all have to be circumcised from a baby to however old. And Abraham's 99 years old. So there's no age limit here, right? And he's managed to, he's managed to do this on that same day with everyone. Now, First of all, that's a, a tremendous act of trust by Abraham for God to say, yes, I'm going to do it. And he does it on the same day. Um, but he must, this guy must have amazing leadership over his house. Because I don't know any guy out there, if you were to present this idea to him and say, by the way, you know, God told me um, that we've got to cut off the foreskin okay, of every male and so, guys, line up. I don't know how many people would be too keen to line up in that, in that line. But if you consider that in that same day, he circumcised every man in his household. That shows something about, one, his faithfulness, but two, his leadership over his house. That they looked up to him. That whatever he said, they said, yes, no, whatever you say, that's right. I trust you. And so the, the same way he trusts God, his men trust him because they didn't speak to God. He didn't speak to them. He spoke to Abraham. And so he's got his son here, Ishmael, who's 13 years old, who's also um, circumcised with him, and he circumcises himself. So what's that got to do with us? Well, have a look at the faith of this guy. Have a look at the fact that he's never done it before. It hadn't been done before. It was something totally new. And so for us... The, the thing is, this shows a, a tremendous amount of faith. Yeah, was he suffering? Was he going to actually, was he set for suffering to obey God and to show his faithfulness to God? Yeah, he was. I'll tell you what, he was going to, he was going to experience suffering. Uh, was this going to cause him pain? Yes, it was. Was he willing to go through it to be faithful? Yes, he was. And I think... For ourselves, the question for us is that when you're a follower of Christ, in order to obey, it will inevitably bring you more suffering. It's not going to bring you comfort. There is no place, there is no command that Jesus asks of us that makes your life or my life more easier. Every one of them, them. Because he's got two lots of Jews against him. He's got the, Jude the, the Jews, the, the ones who were still not believing, 
who were against him, want to try and kill him, and they fight. They tried killing him a number of times. And then you have the ones within the church who said, yes, we believe in Jesus, but the Gentiles have to be circumcised as well. And the Gentiles have to follow all the laws of Moses too, otherwise they're not included. And so Paul's got this massive resistance against him. And so the question is, and we need to ask ourselves today and have answered for ourselves today, is what's it got to do with us? What did Paul say to those people who were forcing Gentiles to get circumcised? He actually rejects them. Because why? Because the Gentiles were not included in the covenant of Abraham. And to mix them up in the covenant of Abraham produces all types of problems that do not and are not meant to exist. They are neither included in the Mosaic covenant. The Gentiles are not included in Moses' covenant. It was with the Jews, his own people. That's when, that's God, that's when God saved Israel out of Egypt and he, gave, he sets up a covenant with them and he gives them all these laws and traditions to follow, but he never gave that to the Gentiles. Turn with me to a few verses here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. We're going to look at now what the Bible, what, what the Apostle Paul specifically tells us about circumcision, but also he's going to explain to us what it actually represents and what it has to do with those people that are Gentiles. So first of all, he rejects the notion that people of Gentiles that have put their faith in Christ need to be circumcised. And so he says in Galatians 5, 6, he says, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So he says to, plainly, doesn't make a difference. Circumcision, whether you're circumcised or whether you're not, doesn't make one iota of difference. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Now, I'm going to be sharing mainly scripture verses here with you without talking too much because I think the scripture verses explain themselves. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, But as God hath distributed to every man, and as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Is there any man being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is there any called uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is, in Paul's words, nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. So according to the Apostle Paul, whether you're circumcised or whether you're not, makes not one iota of difference. But if you turn to Christ and then say, oh, but I have to do the law, what you've then said is that you've, you've actually gone against what the Bible teaches, what the gospel teaches, is that you have to somehow keep a law to stay in God's family. And that is not true. According to Paul, when it comes to physical circumcision, there is not a requirement to change you to come to Christ because circumcision does not make any difference. In fact, Paul then explains the meaning of circumcision. So go to Romans chapter 4, verse 5 with me. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to get you to do a fair bit of uh, Bible hunting now. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Okay. But to him that worketh not, which means he is not trying to do good works to get themselves to heaven, okay? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, that's us, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth, Righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sins, which means put that onto your account. Cometh this blessed, now this, he asks this question, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Just to stop there for a moment. They describe, this describes the way of salvation, that by simple faith in Jesus Christ, that faith is counted to a person 
in God's eyes as righteousness, simply by trusting in him, okay, without doing any works. Not only is that person forgiven of all of their sin, not only is the sin completely covered and taken away, and that's by the blood of Jesus, but God does not impute sin to them anymore. He actually doesn't add any more sin to their account. And you're saying, well, how can that possibly be? What happens when I do something wrong now? Doesn't that get added to my account? Don't I have to pay for that somehow? No, because God does not impute the sin anymore, right? That is, he says that man is truly blessed. And so he asks a question here, does that righteousness come to the Jews only that were circumcised? Or does it come upon those who are uncircumcised too, the Gentiles? Well, the scriptures answer that question for themselves. And he goes on to say, and as he goes on to say here, for we see Abraham getting uh, circumcised here in Genesis 17, which we have read. When God gave him righteousness and credited righteousness to him back in chapter 15, 14 years before God ever asked him to get circumcised, the Bible says that God said, Abraham, because you believe in me, I'm going to count that to your account as righteousness. And so the Apostle Paul says, well, did Abraham get righteousness for being circumcised? No, he got righteousness simply by trusting in God, by believing in God. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, you can turn it if you want, but just you can mark it down. It says, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So what does Paul now conclude to the whole matter? Does a person need to be uh, uh, circumcised? Do they have to become a Jew in order to believe in God? Well, the answer is no. Romans 4:10 now says, how was it then reckoned? That righteousness how was it added to someone when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision not in circumcision but in uncircumcision he was given righteousness and verse 11 says and he received the sign of circumcision the seal of the righteousness of, of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, which means us. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet some circumcised. So whether it's to the Jew, whether it's to the Gentile, Abraham is a demonstration to all of us about what real faith is like. And that real faith is simply believing in God and he counts that to you for righteousness he adds it to your account he takes away your sin not because you earned it not because you were able to cancel your own sins or pay for your own sins God simply says by simply trusting in him if you've ever wondered how people got saved in the Old Testament ever wondered that because people get confused sometimes they think in the Old Testament they had to follow works and they had to the Bible says that no one was ever saved by works no one was ever saved by works. Not in the Old Testament, not in the current Testament, not in the New Testament, not anything that's coming up in the future. The Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith. So the people in the Old Testament, they believed God. You see, because God promised a Savior from the very beginning. And by simply trusting God and saying, I know I'm a sinner. I can't. I'm not good enough. I need you. I need to trust in you for the Savior that you're going to send. That's how someone was saved in the Old Testament. And the Bible says that when Jesus died, the Bible said he didn't go up to heaven because some people get confused. Jesus didn't go up to heaven. You know, during those three days, you know where Jesus went? He went to a place called Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. And it was the same place that Lazarus was the man who died at the gates of that rich man's house. And I could see, I can just imagine Jesus arriving at Abraham's bosom, this place. The Bible says that he was under the earth, right? And Because it says he went down and he went to a place called Abraham's bosom and that's where all the Old Testament saints were. That's where all the ones who had waited for him to come were waiting for him to reveal himself 
so they they could see the object of their faith and he did and there's no one who entered heaven there is no man who ever entered heaven before jesus went through those gates not old testament say not no there's no one who went in before jesus and i can just imagine because the bible says that when he when he arose into heaven when he when he ascended into heaven he led a train behind him a train i wonder who was in that train every old testament saint there would have been adam and eve in that train there would have been moses and abraham and all those descendants all those who would put their faith in god were being led up to heaven and jesus rides into heaven, the gates of heaven first triumphant with all these saved souls behind him that's what we have to look forward to as believers so does a person get saved by the keeping of the law by being circumcised the answer is no but abraham becomes a wonderful example of us of what real faith is so let's look at a few more galatians 6 12 galatians 6 12 And he warns, he warns people in the churches in those days because this was pretty rampant. There were a lot of Jews. And the early church, understand this, the Jews who were becoming believers were struggling with the Gentiles because the Jews had been raised not to eat pork, to, to live in a very strict way. And all of a sudden, they're sitting in the same church pews with Gentiles who were munching on a, a pork roll who were doing things they'd never seen before and they're getting they got a, a big problem with this because it looks like how can you possibly have us together here these these people are like they're, like, they're crazy how are we meant to live with these people and so there was a, there was this friction going on and some of them said no no we can't put up with this this nonsense that these people are doing we have to tell them to do it the same way that we do it otherwise there's not going to be any peace here and so in Galatians 6.12, it says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they can, and they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who were circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to that phrase. Okay? He says, I'm crucified to the world and the world to me. When you were crucified, you were what? Dead. Okay? Verse 15 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. So Paul says that rather than glory in the flesh and say, Look what I've done. You know, we, we circumcise ourselves for you. You know what I mean? It's important to have yourself circumcised over here because you've got to follow the rules. Um, Paul says they're proud. They feel as if because they've done certain things that it makes them more holy than other people who don't have it done. They're proud because they want you to do the same as them so then they can say, see, they followed us and they agreed with us. But Paul argues the flesh is nothing. It's the spirit that makes all the difference. And the only thing he says he can be proud of is that cross. The cross, the instrument of death that Jesus went to, where he was cut off from the world. He was cut off from the land of the living and he was buried. And, and the Apostle Paul says that he can only be proud of what Christ did on that cross. And he says, I am, just like he died, I am now dead to the world. I have been separated from. Because that's essentially what death is, isn't it? It's you're separated from your loved ones. You're separated from the world. You're separated from everything else. And so the Apostle Paul says, I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. And so this is what physical circumcision is a picture of. You see, it's something that's dead and thrown away. It doesn't belong anymore. And once it's cut off, it's that's it. There's, there's nothing left. The flesh that is cut away is evidence of a new creature, a new person with a new identity. Remember what the, what the, what the um, 
the sign of circumcision is. It's a, it's a sign of a covenant, that you're part of something. So like a dead piece of flesh, the world is dead to me and I to the world because I now have new life in Christ. I am a new creature and that life is in Jesus Christ. If you don't have life in Jesus Christ, you might think you have life, but you're literally like a fan that's been plugged into the wall and then someone's unplugged it. It might not stop moving straight away, but it's going to stop one day. And Paul warns the early believers of adding to the gospel. Look at Philippians 3.1. Almost there. Philippians 3.1. Look at what Paul says here that circumcision is like. Philippians 3.1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision, which means those who are pushing circumcision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh which means the flesh has been taken away we don't have confidence in the flesh because our hope is not in the flesh our hope is not in ourselves not in our mortal bodies not in our abilities not in anything because we are dead now to the world okay and our hope is only in christ jesus our hope lies in the power of the cross our hope lies in the, sh the blood that he shared for the remission of our sins and what's amazing about this whole thing is that when you're adopted into God's family, God sees you separated from your flesh. You're no longer attached. You're no longer identified with your old life. You are now identified with a new life, with a new name, with a new hope, with a new identity, and he relates you to himself. Romans 2.28 says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of man, but of God. The circumcision that a Christian, believe, Christian receives, he receives it from God. God does the circumcising. He doesn't do it in the flesh, but what he does, he cuts away your old life he cuts away the flesh that was that need that needed to be judged and i'll explain to you what that means now turn to colossians chapter 2 verse 8 colossians chapter 2 verse 8 because something happens to someone who puts their faith in jesus and it happens in their heart and it happens in their spirit and paul describes this event in Colossians once again he's warning people and he says in Colossians 2 8 beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and ye you all are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are, look at the word, circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened, which means made alive, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, which means the written laws that were against you, that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So let me close with these thoughts. There should be a big amen at the end of that uh, passage right we were dead in sins we were by nature the children of wrath we were on a course for hell 
And we stood condemned because our flesh could not be redeemed. Our flesh was full of sin. All it could do was sin. It wanted to go its own way. And that, that explains all the, the mayhem that we see in the world, all the destruction and all the hatred and all the bitterness and all the sin that we see. Everyone, going, if, you, if you're wondering where it all comes from, it comes from the flesh. It comes from man's innate desire. Because you know what? In a society where they've got laws and everything seems to be okay, scratch a little bit. And all of a sudden, when things, how, how long does it take for things to fall apart? When people start hating each other and people start uh, killing each other, it doesn't take very long. It's always there under the surface. But because of the cross, our, the Bible says that God took our flesh and he nailed it on the cross with Jesus. Somehow, Jesus took the old Frank, okay, with all of my sins and all of my stains, and he took Frank, and when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says I was crucified there with him. Somehow he carried me on that cross. He carried all of my sins. He carried all of my stain. And he took it away. If you're born again today, you need to understand something. That you've died with Christ. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for him. You see, the Bible tells us that he bought us with a great, great price. And he values us so, so much. And he died on the cross so that we might be free to go. Jesus paid it all. Our old self has been severed legally. We don't have to pay for our sins anymore because he paid for them. And God now gives us a brand new identity, a new name, a new hope, a new future. Not because we did anything, not because we deserved any, anything, not because we still, don't deserve, we still don't deserve it. But he did it for us because the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So story of circumcision, if you're ever wondering pictures what happens when a person is born again and we've entered into a new covenant with God a covenant that he does everything that he gives everything we stood one day condemned by the law and by simple faith we had all of our sins paid for a new identity given to us and now we have a new home to look forward to the Bible says for as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If you have Christ this morning, then you are alive, my friend. And you need to remind yourself that you are alive, that you have eternal life. And so the Bible says to now live for him. Put him first in your life in all things. Make every day count for him because he deserves everything from us. He deserves all the glory and all the praise. He deserves every decision we make to be centered and focused around him, not ourselves. And this morning, if you don't know if you have Christ, if you haven't received the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, if you have not been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then please today make it your day because it'll be a wonderful day when you have Jesus come into your heart. Turn to Christ today and if you have Christ, live for Christ today. God bless you. Thank you.